Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by Softcat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on detail. I'm host Michael Bird, and over the next 40 or so minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different era of the IT ecosystem, and of course, explain it. And in this episode, the final episode of Explain It Season 2, I've asked our panel to bring with them some common IT misconceptions that they come across speaking to customers, partners, and suppliers. We're going to be talking through these statements to understand why they're important, why organisations should be aware of them, and some tips to help avoid falling into any traps. As always, I'm joined by a panel of experts who will be bringing an interesting fact with them to help you get to know them better. So, first up, Adam Luca, who is Softcat's Chief Technologist for Security. Adam, what is your interesting fact? So, I'm currently learning paraglide so i went paragliding in peru uh, where you this one where you jump off the hill and you fly into the air which was pretty amazing so i decided that i'm going to come back and learn how to do that in the uk so my first lesson is actually saturday so if you don't give me after this or in series three actually it's probably because i didn't make it uh, we also have uh, craig leginski who is softcats chief technologist for data and emerging technologies craig what is your interesting fact i was once blockaded in a hotel room by a giraffe Okay, explain that one, please. So, on the uh, Softcat incentive uh, quite a few years ago to Kenya, um, one of the, the hotels we were in was actually part of a nature reserve, and all the animals kind of are able to wander around and have sort of free run of the, of the reserve. And one morning I went to go out to breakfast and open the hotel room door, and about one foot away from me was the, uh, the bottom side of a giraffe. So what did you do? You just shut the door and... I stayed in the hotel room for fear of being kicked to death by a giraffe. And then ordered a room service? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we also have Dylan Foster-Edwards, who is Softcat's head of the Office of Chief Technologists. Dylan, what was your interesting fact? All right, well, I spent all weekend trying to think of something. So I went back to my military history. I thought I'd find something that might be interesting. Did you know that on behalf of the Queen, if uh, any military personnel out and about in the street and they spot a uh, Cortez walking past, they must salute on behalf of the Queen. It's, it's paying compliments on her behalf. Wow, that is interesting. We have Adam Harding, who is Softcat's Chief Technologist for End User Computing. Uh, we also have James Seaman, who is Softcat's Account Chief Technologist for Public Sector. James, what is your interesting fact? I once bypassed security in Heathrow, and Heathrow and myself don't know how that happened. How, what? Sorry, how, how did you do that? No, I don't know. But uh, I got off a flight and went through transfers and managed to get to the boarding gate of my next flight and hadn't passed through any security. I was very tired at the time. I don't know how I did it and no one in the airport knows how I did it either. How did you find out that you'd not gone through security? Because I didn't have the security tag on my passport so I wasn't allowed to board the plane. So they had to drive me back to another terminal to come back through security. To this day we couldn't figure out. I wasn't on CCTV. They don't know how I got through Heathrow without passing through security. That is interesting. As mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you've all brought in some IT misconceptions that you've heard from customers, partners, and suppliers. And uh, I've put all of these statements into the official uh, Explain It hat of mystery. We're going to take them out one by one. I'm going to ask you them, or I'm going to read them out, and we're going to talk through these uh, statements and understand why they're misconceptions and perhaps understand how it applies to an organization. So the first one is, Ethics is just a county to the northeast of London. This is kind of leaning on the idea of, of ethics in technology. And we've seen a lot with, we look at what is happening with Facebook and 
a lot of the cases around antitrust, around privacy, around the use of, of people's data as technology is more and more a part of everyone's everyday lives. And I think people are starting to get a little bit more clued on to the ethical implications of certain technologies. And in, in terms of how we utilize technologies like artificial intelligence, like machine vision, when you look at things like the social credit system in China, we look at the use of surveillance and facial recognition trials in, in London with the Met Police, there's a lot more implication that organizations that are developing and deploying these technologies need to be aware not only of the technology of technology's sake, as a lot of technical people might go for and say, well, this is, this is something that's really cool and something we've never been able to do before, but actually start to consider the impact that these have on people's everyday lives. I guess the hard thing about that, though, fundamentally, is that regardless of the ethical impact of the technology development, once the information has been garnered, like you're never going to stop it particularly. And I guess that's the hard bit is, you know, whether or not you do ethical impact assessments before you're doing research, which is becoming more and more commonplace in machine learning and AI um, research particularly. So starting to inspect that. I think fundamentally you're not going to stop that information from coming out. And I guess at least if it's in the hands of the sort of general public or at least it's, it's available to the general public, whether that's, you know, commercially or, or via research uh, institutions like universities, at least there's an opportunity for it to be used for both positive and, and negative uses. I think if you suppress the idea of developing something because it might have or could be used for negative impacts, you potentially then only put it in the hands of people who are going to not follow the rules anyway. Who should be responsible for setting the guidelines and the boundaries? Because I think there's, there's a, a good amount of middle ground um, that nobody would be upset with you using their information for, or you applying these technologies, especially when it comes to health and safety and things like that. But there will always be those that push the boundaries too far. Yeah. So is it a case of we need to wait for legislation to come in place? Or is it a case of we need to be personally responsible as, as individuals and as organisations? Or is it actually a mixture of the both? I think it's probably a mixture of the both. I guess it's if you look at something like the Geneva Convention, there are certain standards that the world in general adheres to that we say these are certain red line issues that actually shouldn't be crossed. And if they are crossed by an organisation, they will be dealt with by the world as a collective. And I think we probably need to start taking some of that approach to some of these more uh, technology-specific issues. I guess if you particularly look at things like uh, machines or AI or, or some sort of software making automated decisions around killing somebody, is that something that we're happen happy to have taken out of the hands of a human? Because then what do you do with attribution? My concern around that is the, the pace of change in, in technology is so fast. You know, the, the legislation and, and conventions have to be governed by societal impact and society's own opinions. So if society's moving, if you take that baseline of that accelerating at 1x, legislation and, and government impact is kind of moving probably about half the speed of that. But technology actually is outstripping society's understanding of it by four or eight times. You look at how long Facebook has been around, the deployment of things like voice assistants, we're only now starting to understand the actual ethical implications of those. And, and as you say, Luke, the, the kind of Pandora's box of it has already been opened. It's already so widespread, so endemic in our lives that I, I think personally anyway, that we have to look for the technology organisations and technologists to understand the ethical impacts of a technology because otherwise you've opened Pandora's box because of that lag between anybody actually controlling this technology and it being unleashed on the public. I think the, the underlying principle here, though, is ethics is analogue. 
ethics requires human intervention. A, a computer, a robot, an AI can't be ethical. Um, if you look at examples in healthcare, in healthcare there's there's technologies that exist to scan medical images and find tumours um, and, and things that shouldn't be there, electronic observations, so AI that will pattern match if you have input on your temperature and your blood pressure and so on, it, it will alert that your condition is getting worse, um, but the ethical input is always it's always analog, it's always a human, it's always someone who reviews that information and takes action on it. And that's the thing that I think needs to be foundational for the use of, of things like AI and automation in the fact that a computer cannot be ethical. AI and true artificial intelligence is predefined. It doesn't have an ethical reference. So I, I think that from a technology perspective and the use case of technology, it, it needs human intervention. Yes, you could probably train it to mimic morality but it would only then mimic the inputs of what it's observed as being moral so you might be able to train a computer to to probably with some level of error to mimic our moral decisions so the decisions humans would make from a certain culture at a certain age point at a certain point in their time i think to get a data set large enough and general enough that actually reflected the whole world's population in all different socio-economic categories in all different ages you know, is such a big data set that it's impossible currently to probably train a model that follows that, I guess. You, you can't know? You can't mimic that, though. Look at the Tesla example around the, the accidents in the car accidents. So the, the auto um, autonomous drive, how does it decide what to crash, who to hit, who not to hit? Yeah, well, that's we're we're unleashing these technologies, but part of the underlying ethics of it, you know, self-driving cars, you have the trolley problem, in effect, and that's a, a philosophical problem that is is still hotly debated and discussed and, and under a lot of question depending on what philosophical school you you subscribe to. Can you just, expi- can you just explain that quickly, the trolley problem? So the, the idea of the trolley problem, it starts off with your, your you have a trolley that's out of control, it can't break, and there's two sets of rails, you're stood by a track switch, and on one track there is one person tied to the rails, and on the other track there's five people tied to the rails. What's the ethical decision there of which track do you choose who do you kill effectively and then you start to add additional problems on top of that so what if the one person tied to the track is a relative of yours and the five people are people you don't know what if the one person is hitler and the five you know there's lots of different ethical questions around that and it starts to raise questions of you look at things like the hippocratic oath and all these kind of moral red lines that we have where it's very subjective and contextual and those are things that technology does very very badly there's no way that, you know, a self-driving car, if you look at, it has a choice whether to kill the occupant or a pedestrian, for example. What's the ethical choice there? Now, if you make self-driving cars, you probably say, well, let's save our customer. But is that really ethical? I wonder whether uh, something like randomness will end up sorting this out, whether you'll have a random number generator, for want of a better term, and the chaos of the universe is the kind of the dice roll. No, just because I think that's that's the only way to remove morality from the fundamental like way of resolving the issue. You know, if it's no longer a moral decision, it's just luck. Yeah, I think you know we we live in an increasingly binary world, and this is not a binary answer. Everybody's ethics is not the same. There's an ethical spectrum, and even if you ask five six of us what the outcome should be in that given scenario, the trolley scenario, I guarantee you'd have at least one person that would disagree with the rest of the room. And when you scale that out to different cultures, different demographics, just generally um, across the real world, where there's lots of, of nuances, there's a general consensus here that the that the person who's in control is going to have to continue to make that ethical 
cool and even that may well not be the right one i wonder whether you'd uh, end up getting dlc in the future where you'd be able to download different ethical packs to your car <laughs> so when it first comes in the ethical pack is you know k- kill you save everyone else but for an extra five thousand dollars you can get the mode that will save your life it's called selfish ai but this is the point it's, it's the human ethic you, you talk about different cultures and, and six of us not been able to agree I think we, we're concentrating on things like AI and automation but if you look at the use case for, for data so things we've opted into to share our data knowingly or unknowingly um, look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal that wasn't AI that was something we'd opted in to do something we'd agreed to use um, and Facebook users had opted in whether they knew about it or not that was targeted that a group of individuals and organization decided to use that data in that fashion and that's the point you we can talk all day long about automation and ai and robotics and but actually when we talk about ethics in technology and developing it we could come up with an idea for a really clever application between the six of us today and go to develop it but it's it's our ethical input on how that data is used how the app's delivered and that's the point i'm trying to get across it's it's that analog human input i think there's also massively it's about personal responsibility i think that nearly nearly all of us don't take our own privacy uh, as seriously as we expect other companies, other technology companies to take it. We sign up to every TNC um, and tick box that we have to click through to get the new update for you know, Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is you're doing. It's shared responsibility. It's not all on the technology companies. It's up to them to make sure that the controls are in place, that if you want to opt out, that you can. But I think it's up to us to actually be personally responsible for our own privacy, for our information, uh, and to only share it where we think it's where we actually choose to. Okay, so just to quickly wrap up this subject then, why is this important to organisations? I think because you look at what's happening in the industry, you look at what's happening in society, the scandals around things like Facebook, there's potentially a breakup of Facebook in an antitrust suit in the US, which has been sparked by the ethical implications of the platform. As individuals become increasingly aware of the ethical implications of the use of data, of the use of technology platforms, it becomes not only beholden upon organizations to act in an ethical way, but it it is going to have an impact on their top and bottom line. You look at privacy concerns around organizations like Huawei, actions of shareholders in Microsoft and AWS for the customers that they deal in. Increasingly, both shareholders, consumers, and also individuals are much more hyper-aware about the implications. And if organizations are building these services, are using technology in that way, there is a tangible impact on their top and bottom line for sure but also i think as as individuals and organizations we need to think about what the impact of our organizations are on society and if we're doing things that are beneficial or that are actually harmful excellent and uh listeners if you want to hear a bit more about some of the stuff that we talked about in that question we recorded a couple of episodes so there's the ai machine learning episode which is episode two of the season and rise of the machines which is episode seven that covers some of that stuff in a little bit more detail as well okay so next statement hardware is simple and software is the clever bit i think increasingly we're seeing a lot of move towards doing things in software. There's the, the whole Mark Andreessen thing from back in, in 2011, which is software is eating the world. And we look at the way organizations are going as, as Softcat and the organizations we deal with. Increasingly, innovation is, is seen to be in what you do in code, what you develop. And the bright work is being done by developers. Increasingly, the platform is getting much, much more simple. So you look at the IS services you can get in the cloud. You look at the new server, server and storage hardware that's coming out. 
and it seems that there's not that much innovation going on in hardware and it's all about the utilization of software i personally would beg to differ and this may be because i come from a, a hardware engineering background that we're going to see another shift in that moving forward. So you look at organizations like, for example, Graphcore down in Bristol, who are building custom chips for artificial intelligence. You look at the utilization of ASICs, which are application-specific integrated circuits, so custom-designed chips that are being used by Microsoft. You have Google using their own custom TPUs, TensorFlow processing units, which they make available in the cloud. The work that NVIDIA is doing in GPU more than ever now we're seeing a resurgence in hardware being the thing that's not only the limiting factor but also the enabling factor on real tangible technological progress is it maybe that the general computer is starting to become less relevant so the idea of general processing or hardware that is not particularly good at anything but good at everything is starting to fade away as sort of specialist computing starts to rise again I guess if you go back 20, 25 years to sort of when the first PC came around, there, there was very much that specialist computing part. Like you took a general PC and you would slot something additional in to drive some additional functions that you needed. And we're sort of going through that revolution or maybe that cycle again as there are specialist and difficult tasks that are difficult for a general computer to achieve but are optimizable via um, specific types of hardware so i guess that's kind of what we're seeing in that that ai and machine learning space it's a particular type of computational problem and hardware engineers are optimizing for that specifically rather than trying to get a, uh, a machine that's good at doing everything I, th I think it's unfair to say that hardware isn't a big differentiator and is the dumb bit i think actually what's happened is the hardware manufacturers whether it be the the general ones that we've, we've been buying from for years or whether it be the cloud platforms that we're really consuming i think everybody's just made it much easier to access really clever specialist stuff and especially when you uh, factor in the aws and azure and google plays the the chipsets that these people are designing to do extremely specialist jobs most organizations 99 percent of organizations would never ever have even dreamt of being able to afford a specialist bit a kit and i think that the entry barrier to buying very specialized hardware has just really dropped down yeah, I think they've just made it easier. I think that masks the sophistication beneath the covers. So I think it's really unfair to suggest that the hardware doesn't... I mean, it's a marriage, really. One without the other is useless. Not all of the magic is in the software. Maybe the the question is could almost be better thought about is it's neither the hardware or the software that really matters because fundamentally everything is just a tool in a kit bag. I think having people who actually know how to utilise that technology and to get the most out of it there's no there's no point buying a you know an aws instance with a massive amount of specialist computing it by itself does nothing you know and even with a good software engineer who knows how to program for that platform it still does nothing it still needs somebody to say well this is how we're going to take advantage of that technology development this is how it's going to make us a, a better whatever type of business so i guess the magic is still in the humans um yeah the software is just the bit that connects it it's, the software is the bit that connects your processes, your people, your creative side um, to the, the back end that drives it. It's just we have so much more performance now than we ever had before at such a low price point with such ease of consumption. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's actually the creative thinkers behind all this stuff. It's the people um, behind this stuff that make the real difference. So but the software yeah. is that glue that connects you. Okay. So next statement. Can... Slash will I fix all of my problems by implementing Windows 10? 
Nope, next question. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll get rid of one problem. You won't have Windows 7. <laughs> and that so, wasn't necessarily yeah. a problem. <laughs> yeah. I have a, an opinion on this, as, and I'm not sure it's going to be popular. <laughs> Is um, that just going to be your, yeah. your custom sting for everything? <laughs> Adam Luca, <laughs> I have an opinion on this. I have an this. opinion on this. Um, what do we think about, how do we feel about planned obsolescence within the technology industry? Fundamentally, like planned obsolescence, you, you can argue that these platforms that have been around forever aren't by themselves broken. They are designed to break. They are given life cycles. And, and those life cycles, yes, are driven by technology improvements. But fundamentally, they're also driven by commerciality and profitability. You know, if we made the one perfect operating system and sold it once, those companies wouldn't be very happy because, you know, they wouldn't continue to make their revenue streams. I do sort of slightly struggle with uh, will Windows 10 fix everything because it won't because at some point Windows 10 will be broken and you know whether or not you believe the evergreen is never going to change but fundamentally it's true you know we will elevate and evolve that operating system into something else that is more suitable Windows 10 will fundamentally solve the fact that you won't get updates for Windows 7 that's the main thing that everyone's chasing away from it's the fact that you won't get patches for vulnerabilities that come out so you are being pushed onto a modern operating system and you're being pushed to move forward. Now, arguably, there are benefits to doing that. You know, there's lots of uh, performance benefits, lots of security benefits for moving to Windows 10. But probably back to the previous question we spoke about is, is that innovation? Is that what's going to truly make your business better that you've now got a Windows 10 operating system rather than a Windows 7 operating system? In my opinion, probably no. What we've got to be careful of here is, is that if we're aiming for perfection in any of the layers of technology that we're trying to deploy, whether it be hardware, whether it be software, we're going to get it wrong. It's doomed to fail because everything else is a moving target. So I think that with regards to your planned obsolescence piece, I think that's a little bit loaded. But what it does do is encourage, it enables the organizations like Microsoft, like Apple, like Google. I appreciate a lot of us think they don't necessarily need the money, but it enables them to fund constant innovation on our behalfs because as in as we spoke about in the other section a lot of our customers organizations they don't have time to properly innovate so they need other people to do it on their behalf and i think that's a lot of it that's what this is about um going back to the original question is uh will windows 10 fix all your problems well obviously it depends on what your problem is but windows 10 is just a springboard you know it's just a springboard and normally where I see Windows 10 as actually having been a problem recently is there's been a wave of digital transformation projects come out, which are digital workspace transformation and things like that. And they've all started off with the right intentions. Lots of good key aspirations about uh, getting better employee engagement and attracting the best new talent and making sure everything's always as secure as it should be and fast as it should be and performant as it should be. And you're as free and as flexible as you should be to be brilliant at the job you've been brought in for. And that's how these projects, or that's how the, the kind of uh, opening gambit always starts. And then what quickly happens is um, the budget for these wonderful lofty ideas recently has just been claimed and land grabbed by Windows 10 upgrades and uh, Microsoft 365 movement. In itself, that's not a problem. You know, those those are very useful, fundamental core building blocks. But if we're talking about, if, if realistically these digital trans, uh, digital workspace transformation projects have ended up being Microsoft upgrades with some new devices, if you can afford it, then that's not delivered on creating a beautiful uh, user experience that makes it easier for your colleagues to be brilliant or whatever it is that they've employed employed to do it's not looked at and it's not just about technology it's not given us the opportunity to look at new processes uh, and new ways of streamlining line of business uh, challenges you know and 
realistically, I think that Windows 10, it's not a necessary evil. It is a far more secure platform. It's far more resilient. It's far more compatible with the applications that we've been throwing at it. But it has ended up being a distraction from the problems we were originally trying to solve, which is how do we make it easier for people to be brilliant at the jobs they've got to do without technology getting in the way. And I think that simple things like uh, everybody talks a good game about uh, employee choice. And what's really happened is we've now resolved, resolved to a position where you have two choices, one Windows machine or another Windows machine. So we have like choice with a little c, I suppose. And what these things originally kicked off with was, you know, can we give true employee choice? Can we make sure that people have a choice between a Windows device and an Apple device and a Google Chrome device? You know? I guess the thing that we talk to customers about, though, is that it's not about what software you've got running on it. It's not about what device you've got. It's about understanding what you need to do to make, I guess, a user's experience better. So it's understanding what's working, what's not working from today that you need to change that makes it work better for them in the future. So, you know, we talk about understanding how they use technology in their daily life, what is limiting their ability to do their job as effectively as possible. So we spend a lot of time when customers come to us and say, I want to do a Windows 10 upgrade. Well, why? And then start to delve a lot deeper into understanding what they really want to try and achieve rather than just going ahead and well, how many devices do you want to deploy, what one do you want, uh, and how quickly do you want them deployed. So, you know, we spend a lot more time understanding the processes, as you said, understanding, um, you know, how their organization is segmented, what different types of users they've got, how they can use their technology, and like what device would suit someone out on the road compared to somebody uh, in the office compared to uh, somebody who's stuck up a mask of some kind. You know, we have to make sure that we're developing the solution to meet the need of the specific user. Okay, so edge computing and 5G are overhyped. I think it's just timing. I think it will not be overhyped in the end. So just quickly define edge computing. So the the idea of edge computing is, obviously at the moment we have a very, very centralised system in, in large data centres. And the concept is the systems and and networks become more distributed, we'll start to move computing to the, the edge. This is using network terminology effectively. So your core is your traditional data centre environment. Edge is much closer to where users individually access that. And the idea behind edge computing is placing compute resource adjacent to the network edge, adjacent to where data is created and where users are accessing the endpoint and moving that away from the data center. If you take Adam's point earlier on Core ML being on the iPhone, that, that's edge computing, that's the smart edge. So that's having the capacity, the, the hardware and the software capability to be able to transact locally. I don't believe it's overhyped. I just think it's a bit premature at the moment to be um, deciding its fate. I feel that um, as we move forward, greater and greater use cases are going to be found uh, for doing um, making decisions at the edge. You know, I don't want to have to call back to the cloud to tell my car to hit its brakes. Um, but I guess the overhype thing, so I heard at the weekend, Glastonbury was on this weekend and it was allegedly the first event that was uh, had full 5G coverage. So one, there was most probably only one device that someone had that could actually use it. So again, that as a little bit of hype would suggest that like, oh, everyone had 5G access, which clearly they didn't. So uh, I'd be interested to understand why that is. But I guess rolling out 5G, we know how hard it was to get to 3G, 4G. We know how much more density is needed with 5G. What are they going to be called, Lods? Base stations. Can we realistically believe that that is actually going to get deployed in our lifetime, considering how bad we are at deploying technology? Yes. Yeah, yeah it'll sure. get deployed. It will just might be late. And I think that's probably going to be the, the whole 5G story. We will get coverage eventually. I wouldn't worry too much about planning for it 
within the next six months or anything. But I think actually the the requirement for edge computing and taking processes and decision making and AI and machine learning to the devices in your hand in your office near to where the decisions are being made that will drive the 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 requirement for five G and uh, a huge expanse of other networking. Absolutely. So uh, kind of two things on this. So in terms of 5G deployment, there will be some aggressive deployments in, in areas and test sites and potentially very built up areas. I think millimeter wave is going to take much longer to be deployed outside of very, very specialist use cases. Just a quick one, millimeter wave. So millimeter wave is the the part of the 5G spectrum that's outside of the traditional GSM spectrum. It uses a wavelength that's, that's designed for very high bandwidth, very low latency. But because of that, it actually operates over a very, very short range. So very useful for point-to-point communications, things you might traditionally use microwave for, but not so much for a standard cellular radio access network. I think we went into it a little bit more on the the 5G episode of Explain It. The millimeter wave will be deployed a little bit slower, but in terms of general consumer access and the base stations that are being deployed, it inevitably will be deployed within our lifetime because this technology will become obsolete you'll have to have a natural refresh cycle for mobile operators. And if you're going to refresh it and you've already paid for 5G spectrum, there's no reason why you wouldn't. In terms of edge computing, to my, to my second point, there's the one I always go back to on this is that there's three laws. So you have to look at the laws of physics, and that is the speed of light in a vacuum is a constant. So stuff that is further away takes longer to get to. So to to mirror Mr. Harding's point, you don't want your car having to call back to a data center. If you're here outside our office in Marlow and your data center has moved its workload to Amsterdam, that latency when you're uh, barreling towards little Johnny at 30 miles an hour is not going to be particularly useful. There's the law of economics uh, around the cost of these things, and the cost of moving data up to the cloud, moving things over the network so that large workloads will increasingly be processed on the edge because of the cost of moving them. And then there's also the law of the land in that you may have certain policies of what you want to do, what you want to process on the edge, what you want to move over the network, and also increasingly legislation on how we move data in between countries, territories, availability zones, etc. I think it's we're starting to see an emergence of this idea of, of, of sort of smart processing. So this idea that policy, whether that's business, security, performance, over what you're trying to compute will start to dictate automatically where is the optimal place to run it. I look at like SD-WAN as one of the maybe earlier examples of this type of technology, this idea of multipathing and best pathing using lots of different mediums. So having a 5G, 4G, 3G uh, cellular connection, having a MPLS link and then having broadband. You know, that's kind of like the edge problem, but in a network construct, you know, the broadband is high bandwidth, but cheap, but it's not guaranteed and it's not, and it could be latent. You know, the MPLS is very expensive expensive but potentially slow but about high stability you know and 4g might be rapid to provision and relatively cheap but it isn't as guaranteeable and it isn't as fast as some of those other link types so the trick is not about whether or not it's overhyped it's whether or not it's relevant to you and the relevancy of the technology is what matters if you fit into one of those three um, use cases or triads that Craig just mentioned there about uh, law of the land and and about physics, you know, then you you will optimize for the best workload, ideally, you know, not everything needs to go to the cloud, not everything needs to be done at the edge. It isn't a binary decision. These are just tools. Okay, so just to wrap up then, edge computing and 5G are overhyped. Why is that important to organizations? Like any technology that hasn't been fully realized yet, there is 
there is a play from vendors and technology companies to demonstrate the promise of that, to drum up interest, to drum up financing if you're a startup or you're looking for investment. So absolutely, there is, there is more hype right now than there is realization because it's, it hasn't reached prime time. But that's the case with any technology. I think the promise of 5G and edge computing and the new use cases for that and the evolution of what we do with data and computing absolutely has a lot of promise. But there is always going to be that time gap between the marketing phase of what we're, we're prophesizing and the actual execution phase. So while not wishing to sit on the fence, it might be, but we kind of don't know yet because we haven't tried it out. Uh, simply spending more on security will make me more secure. It depends, I guess. It's probably the answer. But I think the, the kernel of this is no. Just investing in security tooling and buying new security software can make you more secure, but I, I don't think it's a default position. I think a majority of companies are spending more than they ever have on security. I think if you uh, listeners are listening here and you ask yourself, honestly, do you really feel more secure than you did two years ago, three years ago? I think probably for the majority of customers, at least I speak to, they would answer that they probably feel the same, if not maybe less secure. The risk has evolved, I think, fundamentally, but the number of uh, pounds that people are spending on security increases every year. And for me, it's we need to get away from a separation that buying things will just make this problem go away. We need to learn how to actually quantify and, and bring the problem to a surface so that we can actually understand what is our risk. I think a lot of customers are sitting there currently today not understanding their risk profile number one but also number two how they should minimize that risk and therefore they're probably stuck in a state of security anxiety i almost think about it like a panic attack for customers you know you're worrying about something that is unquantifiable or you haven't quantified therefore you're sort of sitting there in a state of, of unknowing and i think as soon as you put bounds on something as soon as you can understand the extent of an issue then you can make a plan and you can make a program to remediate that and become comfortable with your progress I think without that, you will just throw money and hope that things will get better. A lot more, speaking to a lot more customers more recently, they seem to just buy tons and tons of software. And I think for me, it's about, do they really understand the problem trying to fix? Because they get, there's a lot of hype. They get a lot of, obviously, vendors banging on the door saying, got to buy this technology because it's the best out there. And I suspect there's tons of overlap. They don't deploy hardly any of the technology. What do you see as the the key thing to try and generally understand what the problem is before they go off willy-nilly and buying tons of tools because people tell them it's the right thing to do. I kind of always have that saying that security isn't hard, it's just hard work. And I think that really boils down to the fact that people don't want to do, for want of a better term, the unfun stuff. And the unfun stuff is the foundational work. It is what are your assets? What are your data assets? What how important are they to you? What are your risks and threats and vulnerabilities? You know, and ultimately, what level of risk will you tolerate? Therefore, what security mitigations or controls do you need to put in place? And the problem is, is there isn't a piece of technology for that. You can't just buy a thing and it will do it. You need to put time and effort and have the right expertise to make those decisions. And I think organizations don't either willingly don't invest in the right people with the resources to do that or alternatively, don't know that they need that type of skill set within their organization. I think it's a little bit like trying to run a company without a CFO. You know, actually most organizations will have someone who will look at corporate risk or look at that risk profile from a financial perspective. It's a bit like going, oh, we don't really track our money because we, I'm sure it'll be okay. But do you think that that means that you should actually invest in having 
qualified people rather than lots of tools. Yes, for sure, 100%. The people are the ones who are able to provide the context. And and the context is everything in security. You know, knowing who you are, knowing what you do, and knowing who's likely to target you is what enables you to make those decisions. And I think whether or not that's that's a resource you have internally or that's a resource you contract in or that's a resource that you, you go out to market for, is less relevant but i do think it is important to have that because without that i think you are you're unable to make a sensible decision and you're unable to put bounds around this problem and i I think also people can get very distracted by buying technology and by skilling up the people that turn settings on and off i think part of the the security challenge is actually getting your broader uh, user base ready I think a lot of it is understanding the processes your organizations use and how can security kind of protect them and serve them better. Uh, And I think that there is a lot of good money thrown after bad on security tools because paranoia, much of it well-founded, to be fair, rings so highly. So I think there's, there's something to be said for making sure your user community understand their role that they play in it as well and how they should behave in certain situations and feeding them water and, and, and training and doing awareness pieces with them constantly because the threats change. I think that's that's quite important. I don't think it's good enough to just sign a uh, an IT policy when they join the company and then you know, 15 years down the line expect that they've they've matured as all the threats have. I think it has to come back to define what are you trying to secure against who and to what level. You know, without answering those three basic questions, I think you are just throwing money into a black hole and hoping that it's all going to be okay. I think you have to strip the problem back. And again, I think like a lot of the questions we've answered today, it is those business questions that are not technology led that often aren't the ones being asked because they're not of interest to business leaders and i think they have to become of interest to businesses that want to exist in i guess this digital native era there are a couple of episodes that we've done this season that, that talk about security in a little more detail. So there's episode four, which was a security trends episode, episode six, which was our supply chain attacks episode, and episode 12, which was our EDR episode as well. So you can uh, check those out. Okay, so our final question, our final statement, should I say, the cloud is always better and cheaper. So this, this is one that, um, again, we're doing a lot of kind of fence sitting and it depends here, but it, it really does depend. And what we do a lot of here at Softcat is helping customers to understand the total cost of cloud. So not just the difference between buying an IaaS service versus a physical piece of server, storage, network hardware, etc., but actually understanding the broader cost. So because there's lots of different tiers, lots of different services inside public cloud, when you look at the difference between, say, a platform as a service or a software as a service offering, what you're also getting in there is things like configuration, like security, all these different capabilities that are managed for you, that are offloaded, and you compare that to the cost internally, additional software costs, additional hardware costs, training, individuals, and the, the cost of time, you really have to weigh up the whole total cost of ownership and understand all the implications rather than just specific clock cycle per clock cycle, second per second costings. From a security perspective, I would have to argue that it probably is cheaper. And that's mainly because of the shared responsibility model. Ultimately, you are outsourcing a percentage of that underlying security technology that you typically would have had to invest invest in on, uh, on-premise. Um, that being said, I find a lot of customers don't know how to utilize and actually get the most out of the underlying 
resources and functions that exist in the platform. So I guess what you're doing is you're fundamentally trading off upfront investment in technology or, or new hardware or new data center equipment. But you are stretching that cost out in things like training and enablement, because actually without having people who are able to turn this functionality on, you are just doing, as Craig said, you're just doing a like for like comparison on how quick and cheap the fundamental processing is. So it's that day two operations cost that is really the true cost of cloud. But being said, I don't think there is any, well, I, I think there's very few organizations who could build a data center that has the physical security capabilities of any one of these tier one data centers in the world. I don't expect that there is anyone out there who can run the security operations centers that these people are running to monitor and manage those platforms. And I don't believe there's anyone out there in the world who invests as much in innovating and developing and extending those platforms at the rate that they do. So... I do think you, you kind of have to get off the fence and get on the journey with cloud. But I do think it comes back to, you know, understanding that lift and shift and trying to move your existing security control models and, and fundamentally your resources in the same format is not the way to consume cloud. So if you aren't prepared to make that decision, then my personal view is don't consume cloud as anything other than SaaS. You know, if you are not an organization who is relevant, who is prepared and, and capable to transform your applications into a, a modern cloud architecture, you know, then then work out really what functions you need and try and take those all, all as a SaaS service and minimize your operational cost and, and crunch IT down fundamentally. You know, actually, it becomes about the functions that you deliver. But if you do want that flexibility and control and ultimately to define your own destiny, then you've got to go for a transformation with your skill set internally so you're able to get the best out of the cloud. The shorthand version is the classic IT model does not work with public cloud. You have to transform multiple elements of your IT service, not just your, your technical platform, if you want to consume public cloud in an efficient manner. And then the only way you can really understand whether it is f cheaper is to understand that TCO. But the classic IT model does not work. It does not stack up. You, you have to transform your entire IT organization to utilize public cloud effectively. I think there's a lot of, of cost transfer as well and moving around. You can't take the traditional cost allocation model that you can on-premises. You know, you look at a capital acquisition of hardware. Once you've you've put one service on it, the rest is effectively free. The marginal cost diminishes with the utilization because the more dense you get on that platform, the better. In a cloud environment where everything is built incrementally and you have a, a flat rate effectively, although, you know, there's... There's certain benefits allowed based on your usage, spot instances, reserved instances, etc. etc. But you have a more direct cost allocation model in that scenario. But also, as Adam's pointing out, the the investments being made in security operations center, the the investments being made in configurability and tools that you have, to use things like public cloud efficiently, you have to look at what workloads are best suited to that and understand that in order to do that effectively and take advantage of all those those benefits you also have to look at re-architecting your applications now if you're using something that's very bursty that's that's really ideally suited for a cloud environment it has to be a cloud native architecture lifting and shifting vms there is a use case for that and we look at services like vmware cloud and aws that's a service that's that's really well tuned for traditional vmware workloads but if you're putting web scale applications out there you need to look at containerization at serverless functions, how you utilize your storage and network differently in order to reduce that cost base down so that all the other features that you're getting on top of that become 
more cost effective and the overall TCO becomes realistic when compared to on-premises. So yeah, so I think I think this is all this is all all correct. I think realistically it's about it's about balance. Uh, not all workloads are appropriate for the cloud because because and it might be a a regulatory reason, it might be a cost reason, it might be a legacy reason, but um, I think that when you look at the processes that technology is supposed to be supporting, there's plenty of occasions whereby actually edge computing and machine learning at a device level in the intelligent edge um, is far more suitable. However, for the rest of the workloads that support that process, hooking into a one of the hyperscale clouds so you can take advantage of the security, reliability, performance, scale, and all that other stuff, good stuff uh, is perfectly right I think it would be a mistake for anybody to be purely cloud or to be purely on-premise okay so the cloud is always better and cheaper why is that important to organizations so I think it's important to understand the as we as we discussed you know the the operations model that you're running the way you structure your IT team the way you select your services and the way you understand the cost of these services because as James pointed out, the operation model, the way you run IT services, the way you run IT in, in public cloud is very, very different. And everything that falls out underneath that is very different as well. So looking at the pure sticker price, looking at the, the label on the tin is not good enough in order to understand the complete cost, but also understanding the benefits. I liken public cloud a lot to a, to a hotel in that you get a lot more bells and whistles, but you may not want to spend 365 days a year there because it becomes expensive for the really mundane things. But also, and perhaps preaching to the crowd here with the office of the CTO, hotels are really useful for business. And if you're going out there and earning money, and if it's something that you're monetizing, if there's a tangible benefit to you that you can then create revenue or derive profit from, that changes the cost model again. And that innovation catalyst, that democratization of services like artificial intelligence, like machine learning, all the, all the new capabilities that are available in public cloud that can be innovation and revenue drivers, further complicate that cost base. So it's really about taking a holistic view to not only what all the different IT services like public cloud, edge computing, AI, 5G, I'm trying to cover all the buzzwords that we've covered so far this episode, Taking that holistic view and understanding the impact on your organization is really important to understand the financial implications of any IT transformation. So Adam L, Adam H, Craig, Dylan and James, uh, it's been really interesting talking to you all. Thank you so much for your time. Listeners, if there's anything in this show that has piqued your interest or if you'd like to talk to someone at Softcat about anything we've talked on this episode, do make sure you check out the show notes. And we're going to put some of the stuff that we talked about today as well as some contact details if you'd like to get in touch. Now, putting together the Explain It podcast involves lots of people. So before we wrap up the final episode of this season, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to a few people. Firstly, to the 18 incredible, interesting and insightful guests that we've had this series. So that's Dylan Foster-Edwards, Dean Gardner, Adam Harding, Craig Leginski, Matt Armstrong-Barnes, James Seaman, Philippa Winter, Brett Wormsley, Matt Helling, Dan Wiley, Adam Luca, 
Rob Hillier, Joe Bagley, Andy Hardley, Martin Myers, Jaspreet Singh, Rebecca Monk and Russell Humphreys. Thanks also for production support from Laura McLaughlin, Daisy Mossop and Robert Murgatroyd. Transcription, copy editing and digital support from LJ Stocks. Editing from Harry Morton and the team at Lower Street. And of course, a huge thank you to you for tuning in and listening to this podcast. So that's it for Explain It Season 2. We'll hopefully see you next year for Explain It Season 3. But for now, I'm Michael Bird and thank you for listening to Explain It from Softcats.